This is Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross. We wanted to feature something special on this July 4th, so we went deep into our archive and pulled out a couple of interviews with perhaps the greatest of all soul singers, Al Green. His string of hits in the 70s include Tired of Being Alone, Let's Stay Together, Call Me, Take Me to the River, and this one. Love and happiness Yeah Something that can make you do wrong Make you do right Yeah Love But wait a minute, something's going wrong Someone's on the phone Three o'clock in the morning yeah. Talking about How she can make it right yeah. Happiness is when You really feel good about somebody Nothing wrong being in love with someone, yeah. Oh, baby, love and a happiness. Al Green's soul hits were made with producer Willie Mitchell, the force behind the Memphis based label High Records. Success and Al Green's image as a sex symbol brought its own problems and temptations. In 1974, an angry former girlfriend threw a pot of steaming grits on him. He landed in the hospital with second-degree burns. She died by suicide. This incident got Green to question what he wanted musically and spiritually. By the end of the decade, he decided to give up secular music and for several years performed only gospel. This is from his 1980 Grammy-winning gospel album, The Lord Will Make a Way. I'm too close to heaven I can almost see my journey's end Oh, I'm too close Shaking hands with all my, 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 my friends You know I'm a It was in 1976, after being ordained as a minister, that Al Green bought a church in Memphis, the full gospel tabernacle, where he continues to preach. We're going to hear excerpts of my two interviews with him, from 1991 and from 2000 after the publication of his memoir. He started performing at the age of nine with his family's gospel group in rural Arkansas, where his father was a sharecropper. In our 2000 interview, we talked about his early years. Your father sang gospel music and traveled around. You had a brother group. You and your brothers sang 
that church. Did the whole gospel Whitman, circuit. Right. When did you start getting serious about singing? When I got put out of the house. And why did you get put out of the house? For listening to Jackie Wilson and Otis Redding and people like that. And Daddy wanted to keep the group gospel group. I mean, uh, we need to sing gospel. You need to turn that off. And I'm going like, well, but I want to hear it. And I had a Elvis Presley album, and I had never been to Memphis. I'm 14 years old, and I have all these Love Me Tender and Teddy Bear and Jailhouse Rock and all this stuff. And I'm not saying because I'm from Memphis. I had never been to Memphis. I was in Michigan. And Dad says, that's a bunch of junk, man. You need to consider what you're doing. You're singing gospel music, and you need to consider singing gospel music. So I got this brand-new album called Baby Workout by Jackie Wilson. <laughs> and, oh, I just looked at the cover, and this guy had all these fine pictures on it, and I said, oh, I got to play it. So I went and I opened it up, and I put it on, and by the time Jackie Wilson said, oh, baby, move up, first step, daddy come in the door and caught me. I said, oh, Lord. I got, uh, so he went through third degree with me, and uh, I was out of there. But I had a friend, luckily enough, lived right in back of us named Lee Verges. And his father and his mom, his wife and himself took me in. I had nowhere to go, really. And they took me in. But now this Lee Verges was a tenor singer in a group. Oh. That Palmer James and Curtis Rogers had started, and they called themselves the Creations. And so they, we used to rehearse in the house every day because we had nothing to do anyway. Every day we had rehearsal at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and we would just get up, stand in a line, and form, and try to come up with little dances like we'd see the Temptations do on the TV. And um, that's right. So what kind of material did you sing? With the creation. Oh, God, I, we sung everything that was on the radio. I Covers. Mean, that's right. Uh, Dock of the Bay, uh, Wilson Pickett, uh, James. I mean, we just a little group. We just sung anything. Al Green, recorded in 2000. We'll return to that interview a little later. In 1991, I spoke to Al Green before a concert in Philadelphia. I wanted to know if he was still singing soul songs or just performing gospel music. Are there songs of yours that you won't sing now? Yeah. Which ones? Well, I can't I can't sing some songs because I wrote them because of um, I Love You, Baby, Darling, I Care For You. You know, I wrote them because of sensual love. I want to take you in my arms and sweep you off my feet, put you on a plane, go to a nice resort area with a cold <laughs> bottle of champagne and kiss you. Mwah, 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 mwah. I wrote them because of that. And then, but now, like, Let's Stay Together, I wrote for couples because whether times are good or bad, happy or sad, whether we're right or wrong, forgiveness is in there. And we can always make up. That's always a lot of fun. And we can go on with our lives being what we're supposed to be. Well, Al Green, I'm going to play Let's Stay Together. Let's play that. That's something you still sing, right? I still sing. I'm singing that tomorrow night. Okay, here we mm. go. I'm so in love with you. 
That's my guest Al Green and his hit recording of Let's Stay Together. Do you remember how you met Willie Mitchell, who was the person who signed you to High Records and yeah. produced all the hits that you had with High? Yeah, I remember how I met him. How'd, how'd you meet him? I met him in the country, out in Midland, Texas, in Odessa, Texas, out there. I met him out there, and uh, he uh, asked me about going to Memphis to sing on a recording because he worked at a studio. And we were riding in the car that day, and I said, how long do you think it'll take me? I was so flamboyant, I don't understand how I did it. I was riding with this guy, and I said, how long will it take me to become a star? <laughs> <laughs> he says, and he swallowed and like choked, right? He says, a star? Well, <clears throat> about two years probably, if you really work at it. I said, excuse me, let me out. I, can't, I don't have any kind of time. <laughs> he says, you're not serious. I said, I'm serious. I don't have two years to waste on practicing to become a star. I need, I need, in fact, I need some money now. <laughs> and really, so he took me down to high. He says, this kid's going to be phenomenal. They says, how do you know that? He says, because he's got it in him. And so he borrowed $1,500 for me from the president of the company to get me a place to stay and all that and says, I want to work with him because he's going to be phenomenal. Just watch she really pays to have chutzpah, huh? <laughs> I guess. I just told him I just, you know, I wanted to be what I wanted to be. Uh, now, now the, the, the first song that he asked you to record was a cover of the Beatles' I Want to Hold Your Hand, right? Would you believe that? It really is hard to believe. Why, did, why did he choose that? I have no idea. What, did, what was your reaction to it? My reaction was good. I thought it was a great song. It was a wonderful song, but it was for the Beatles. <laughs> it was <wasn't. laughs> I sung I Want to Hold Your Hand. I sung Driving Wheel. We was trying to find Al Green. That's what we was trying to find. Who is this guy? Who is this guy with the high falsetto and the rough voice? And Willie says, I tell you what, don't sing with the rough voice. I said, well, what do you want me to do? We've cutting all these different songs about different people, just a lot of songs. He says, sing mellow. Don't sing hard. Sing mellow. And I just went out there and started singing, I'm so tired of being alone. And I'm so tired of on my own. Help me, girl, as soon as you can. And I looked in the studio mirror. They have this glass, right? And you can look in there at the engineers. And everybody was jumping up and jumping up and jumping up. And I says, well, I must be doing something right. So I just keep on saying, people say. And that's, I don't know how that started. That's the way it started. Well, that was your song. It was a song you wrote. So you, yeah. you already had it written. Yeah, uh, I said, that? well, after we got done cutting all these other people's songs, the Beatles and, <laughs> and all these blues songs and the Temptations, I uh, Can't Get Next to You and all these songs, I says, I got a song too. So Willie says, oh, please. Because he'd been cutting all day. We'd been cutting all day. It was 1 o'clock in the morning. I says, I got me a song and I wrote it on my own. So Willie told one of the guys, go out there and see what he got, would you please? I, I, I got to have a drink. Willie had a, a, a little shot of vodka or something. And after he went to feeling better, he says, all right, what we got out here? 
And it was this song, Tired of Being Alone, and I worked it up with the band. And I sung it, and it became our first million seller. Well, I'm going to play it. Let's play it. Come on. Let's, <laughs> let's play it. This is Al Green's first big hit, a song he wrote, Tired of Being Alone. Tired of being alone? Were you alone? Were you tired of being alone? Yeah, well, I, my girlfriend kept uh, leaving me the key and leaving the apartment. And um, she would leave me a lot, and I was. And I saw, so I says, Well, how? It was snowing one night. It was snowing, and I had all the windows open because I was there by myself for hours on end. And I says, Well, how can I, how can I do something with this? How can I. Make something out of this. And so I took a pencil and started writing it down because I was angry and I was writing, I'm tired of being alone, I'm tired of on my own. Um, and I wrote several other things. I scratched those out and I said, help me as soon as you can. And then I went to getting serious about it. People say that I found a way to make you say that you love me which is I don't have to make you. If you really love me, you'd be here with me. And I was writing on that connotation. You didn't go for that. It's a natural fact. I want to get back to a story you were telling about, you know, how you had to sing uh, I Want to Hold Your Hand. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's your first song. How did you sing that? I mean, what, what voice did you use? I don't know. I just kind of sang, Hey, you got that something. I think I understand. When I feel that something, I want to hold your hand. I want to hold your hand. Like that. That sounds great. <laughs> uh, I sung it in 71. That was 19 years ago. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, we got the feeling now. We got the feeling now. Shut up, Al Green. Oh, boy. That was... All right, man. God damn.
walk up and tell me I want to hold your There's um, a story about you that's kind of legendary in uh, music lore, and I'm thinking of the story of the time uh, a woman you were with poured hot grits or hot oatmeal or something cream, on cream of wheat, cream of wheat <laughs> on you while you were in the bath and and yeah. scalded you and then took her life. Yeah, she killed herself afterwards. Is there yeah. a connection between that story and your being born again? Nah, not whatsoever. People in journalism like to say that that was the reason, but I was born again in in seventy three. This incident happened in nineteen seventy four, so it really don't correlate. I was born again because I was. They saw what I could be, not what I was. They knew what I was. I was a no good woman hunting, champagne drinking, good time having Saturday night blues singing man. But they says, I'm not interested in what you are. What we're interested in is what you can be. And so I was born again on that premise. How soon after you were born again did you become a minister? I was born again in 73. I ran for three years trying to keep from becoming one, and I started church in December 1974, 1976, I'm sorry. So when you became a minister and, and, and started a church, did you did you have the church built? Was it a building that already existed, or did you have Mm-mm. it built? No, I was in a hurry. I went and bought the church. The time I saw it, I said, didn't matter what church it was. My mind was in such a turmoil. I was a star. I could go anywhere. People know you. But I was spiritually so tumult. Since you were a star, yeah. and you still are a star, but, I mean, yeah. when you started the church, yeah. people knew you as Al Green, you know, soul singer. Yeah. Did you have a lot of people showing up, especially early on? Yeah. Just to, yeah. to hear Al Green still sing? Do. Still, still do. Still do. Yeah. So how much do you sing in the church? I sing quite a bit, but I also, when they come, I also drop the bomb. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. You don't let them off easy. <laughs> no. I catch them with that voice, and I hold them with that voice, and then I tell them what they, and they wind up agreeing with me. Al Green recorded in 1991. He's still leading services at his church in Memphis. We'll hear more of the interview I recorded with him in 2000 after we take a short break. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air. like to dedicate this song. We've gone deep into our archive for the holiday to play back excerpts of two of my interviews with the great soul and gospel singer Al Green. He was ordained in 1976, the same year he bought the full gospel tabernacle church in Memphis, where he continues to preach. Before we hear more of the interview we recorded in 2000, let's hear music from his 1981 Grammy-winning album, Higher Plane.
would you want your church to be similar to or different from the churches that you grew up in? And you grew up in a small town in Arkansas right. before your family moved to Michigan. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So um, tell me about those churches and what you wanted to keep and what you wanted to not keep. I'm interested in the church being real. And when you get into that area, and I was told by this by Reverend Blair, Blair T. Hunt, who's gone on now, but he was a very, very, very astute, educated doctorate uh, man. And I went to him when I was in trouble undertaking, going to the undertaking of this particular job of what you're calling me now, the Reverend Al Rain. Okay, still with the calling, too, now with the calling. And he said, well, Al, let's do it like this. Um, not so rudely that the people are, you know, animals or something like that, but if you take an animal and the animal is sick, he, let's take a dog, for instance. If a dog is sick, um, he wants the can of meat. Now, what I want you to do, I want you to take the medicine that the dog needs. See, he don't know he needs the medicine. He know he wants the meat. So what you do is take the medicine, push it down in the meat, and give the dog what he wants. And that's the meat. So while he eats what he wants, he gets what he needs. And that's the way I want you to try to overcome this and... Well, tell me about the churches you went to when, when your father <laughs> back to was the question. <laughs> yeah, back to the question. I love it. Oh, I can't get her off this. Okay, well, the churches were Pentecostal, tambourines, a very expressional, very religious, a very um, for real. These people were overcome by something. These people were—I mean, I'm, I'm willing to express myself because he's been good to me. Were you ever afraid watching people who were overcome, overcome by the spirit, and, and yeah. they'd start behaving yeah. really yeah, differently? Absolutely, absolutely. I have been right next door to somebody, and they were sitting here perfectly calm a minute ago, and all of a sudden they're all over the place, and I'm going like, "What is this?" You know, and 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 that's right. What song had the most meaning for you as a child in church? Oh, as a child, it would be two things. Uh, Jesus, is, Jesus is coming back again. Jesus. This is all way back out in the country now. This is Jack Nash, Arkansas, way back. No gravel roads. I mean, when it rains, you just stuck. Okay, <laughs> you can't drive a car back in. These songs, uh, he's coming back again. And then um, I heard Sam Cook on a radio, on my grandmama's radio, saying, Nearer my God to thee. And oh, I just went. And I used to hear the Roy Acuff and um, Grand Ole Opry years ago. We didn't have a TV now, just Grandmama's old radio. And I used to listen to these, and then sometimes they'd form their little gospel groups on the end, and they'd sing, Will the Circle Be Unbroken, and all these. And I was just so amazed to hear a guy sing, um, um, I saw the light, I saw the light. No more darkness, no more night. All my days will be sunny and bright. And then he said, praise the Lord. And I said, that's strange. 
Now, there's a part in, in your book in which it describes when you first moved north yeah. to Grand Rapids, Michigan, that, yeah. you know, you, you, were, you were kind of small, you weren't used to cities, right. and um, you got beaten up by a gang really soon. Right. Um, I'm wondering if, if you ever felt that you were, you know, cool until you got on stage and you started singing and people really got who you were through mm. the songs, you know? No. Like if if you had if you got more if you were more com- comfortable on stage and if mm-hmm. people thought of you differently on stage mm-hmm. than say in the street. No, we were too poor for that. I mean, no, that we didn't have any cool uh, anything like that. We just had a pair of jeans and a. I don't even mean clothes. I just mean. No, no, I know what you're saying, yeah. but I'm trying to express the best way I can put it, uh, uh, no, I wasn't cool or anything like that. Uh, we were very poor. There was five boys, five girls. So that's 10 people. And mom and dad, that's 12. So somebody got to get out. You know, so, you know, and my brother started to marry off and that tried and that, that tried. But no, I really don't know anything about cool or anything like that. Uh, I was just, now one thing I am and one thing I was and one thing I will be and that is alone. I always be alone, and all my friends are like um, that was in school. I'm measuring from school now. Were like I don't know, kind of like people that everyone else really didn't pay too much attention to. You know, um, if there uh, wasn't a guy that had a polio or something, a cripple or something, it was always somebody else that. So I was always a black sheep in the family and always a loner, kind of like a lone wolf, always lone by myself. Uh, not too many people love me. Um, and I know that. So I never thought that the good Lord would bring it around to all of this. So how did it feel after, you know, feeling that not that many people loved you, that you were a loner, to be on stage and be this kind of lightning rod for, for adoration? Yeah, well, that was kind of weird because uh, I was um, young, uh, fine, uh, hips, uh Beautiful, and then again, I was different from everybody else because everybody said I was a some kind of vert, some type of not a pervert, but a like a introvert or something. This guy hangs out over in the corner by himself, mumbles to himself, uh, always some type of stuff. Like in shop class in the fifth grade, this guy's in here singing in shop class with the machines going, and uh, I never thought I could sing. And some guy says, "You know, hey, that guy that can sing, man. Did you hear that guy in the machine going?" So I think can't nobody hear me, and I got my earmuffs on and my glasses. So, you know, I'm in here just singing away. And so when I look around, the whole class is behind me, and everybody going, hey, man, that is fantastic. And that's the first time I ever heard that I could sing. That's not in the book. Did you ever think that you would be a sharecropper yourself before you had a singing career, before, before you got out of Arkansas? When you were a kid, did you say, well, this is going to be my life? No, I never said that. And my daddy didn't believe it was going to be his either. And that's why we got out of there mm-hmm. one night about 12 o'clock. All of a sudden, daddy says, uh, hey, let's go. And mom was saying, like, what are you talking about? Where are we going? And everybody's up going like, oh, what did he say? Uh, uh, he said, let's go. 
pack your things, put your stuff in there, and let's go. And uh, what are we going to do about the cattle? What are we going to do about the goats? What are we going to do about the mules? What are we going to do about the farm equipment? I mean, what are you going to? Dad said, let's go. So we start packing stuff. Let's go. We said, let's go. I mean, it's let's go. So we left and left all the stuff. How old were you? Nine, eight, like in there, riding on the back of a truck one night with all this stuff jammed on the back of a pickup truck. I don't know. Going to Michigan, I think it was. (laughs) We're listening back to my interview with Al Green, recorded in 2000. More after a break. This is Fresh Air. This is Fresh Air. Let's get back to the interview I recorded with Al Green in 2000. You were born again in what year was it? 75? I was born again in 1973. 73. By the grace of God. Yes, love. And, and, and in the book it says that when you told Willie, Willie Mitchell that, your producer, he said to you that, you know, there's going to come a time very soon you're not going to want to sing secular songs anymore. You're just going to be singing gospel music. And Willie Mitchell said, that he didn't produce that kind of music, so he wouldn't be able to work with you after that. Well, he said he couldn't cut gospel music because he'd never cut one before, and he hadn't. But I, I, I was so determined. I went and got a, a boy from Alabama, um, Bill Cantrell, and asked him if he could build me a studio out of a rehearsal hall we had built here along with the office. And he said, well, well I mean... Uh, and he's looking around the building, and he says, well, it's possible, Al. I mean, it takes some soundproofing and a, you know, a board room to put the, uh, the board and uh, machine to record it, but I think it could be done. And uh, that was such a strange time because Willie Mitchell and I kept going to California hoping to get a Grammy. And uh, tired of being alone, we didn't win a Grammy. So next year we went for Let's Stay Together, and uh, we didn't win a Grammy. So the next year we went for Still in Love with You, and we never won a Grammy. So Willie said, to hell with it. Well, you got to know Willie, you know. Willie said, to hell with it. Oh, we're going to make the money. <laughs> Forget about a Grammy, because I'm not going anymore, you know what I mean? I don't ever win anyway. So... You know, so I came out with, um, look what you've done for me. No, you ought to be with me. That's right. And I went to the Grammys, but I didn't win a Grammy. So Bill Cantrell says, well, I'm about, I'm about done with the studio, so um, what are you going to sing? I sung the Bell album. This, 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 this Bell song. And then I did the Law to Make a Way album. And I won a Grammy for the Law to Make a Way. And I thought that was the strangest thing, to go and cut a gospel song, and I win a Grammy. I went over to Nashville and cut Precious Lord, and they gave me two Grammys. I'm going like, this is the weirdest thing. I'm cutting, that's right, sacred music, they give you a Grammy. You cut something to sell by five or ten million records, no Grammy. Were you surprised when you had your born-again experience? Oh, my God, yes. I was at a party. I was in San Francisco. I mean, I played the Cow Palace. I had my little diamond on, you know, and I called and 
had my girlfriend to fly out from Detroit. I'll take care of the ticket, you know. Oh, I was tippy, 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 tippy toe. Oh, I was in, oh, honey, I was gone, you know. So Disney sent their plane up and picked us up in San Francisco, flew us down to Anaheim to do the 12 o'clock show that night, right? And we did the show, me and the band on, having a little champagne and, you know, the girls all on the plane and, you know, we just having fun and talking and chilling, you know. So my girlfriend came and so after the show, the second show that night, I was kind of tired. I said, babe, I said, I am zonked. I says, uh, I'll just see you in the morning. She said, well, after that flight, oh, man, it was about three or four hours, five hours or whatever it was. She said, I'm tired, too. I'll see you in the morning. I said, okay, great. Well, I'll see you in the morning. Bye-bye. And, went, you know, she went that way inside the suite and closed the door, and I went that way inside the suite and closed the door. Now, between that time, which is about 12, 1 o'clock in the morning, to 4 4.30 in the morning, this guy's born again here. And um, I've never been the same since, since that day, since that very day. I've never been the same. I've never been the same. You have your own church now. You've yeah. had that church for how many 22 years? 22 years. Do you often think, like, who would you have been, what would you have been doing if it wasn't for being born again, and if it wasn't for your church? Like, what life would you be leading? Would you even be alive? That's a good question right there. Man, that's a good question, because uh, there's so many of my friends that started when I started, even in Philadelphia here and all around the country, Detroit and uh, different other places. I don't know what I could have been, but I don't, I don't want to get caught up in all of that... Um, Drug um, inducement, um, hallucination, um, uh, Donnie Hathaway, um, uh, so many of us that start at the same time. Um, oh, there's such a tragic aura around great success. Sam Cooke, um, all these people. Um, there's such a, and I was afraid, Otis. The plane. Um, so, 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 you, so yeah, I was. Yeah, I, I was. I would be afraid to take a chance like that. I would rather hold on to the Lord and make Him and let Him be the master of my life than me trying to do what we were doing coming from the cow palace down to Disney because, you know, I mean, my intentions was just to have a party. That's all I was thinking about. Now, this born again, uh, waking up out of my sleep, you know, with the amen and the hallelujah and the thank you, Jesus, and the overflowing. And, I, and my dad came out, and he was across the hall, and he says, what's wrong with you, boy? And um, so he grabbed me by the shoulder, what's wrong with you? And I said, look at my hands. Look at my hands, and I'm crying. And he says, "What's wrong with you?" And I said, "Look at my hands." I mean, would you look at my hands? And he says, "What's wrong with your hands?" I said, "Look at my feet. Look at my feet. Look at my feet." And he says, "So he turned right then, and kind of like caught himself and turned, and he himself went and said, "Thank you, Lord. That boy's been saved." Thank you, Lord. Al Green, I really wish we had more time, but we have to let you go. It's been such a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you so very much. I'll go and sign books. <laughs> <laughs>
the Reverend Al Green recorded in 2000 after the publication of his memoir. He continues to preach at the Full Gospel Tabernacle Church in Memphis, Tennessee. After we take a short break, Justin Chang will review a science fiction film set during a pandemic of sudden memory loss. This is Fresh Air. Our film critic Justin Chang recommends a science fiction mystery about a man experiencing the effects of sudden memory loss. It's a Greek movie that first played festivals in the fall of 2020 and was Greece's Oscar submission for Best International Feature that year. It's now playing in U.S. theaters. Here's Justin's review. I first watched Apples about two years ago, several months into COVID lockdown. At the time, the movie felt eerily of the moment, since its story takes place during a pandemic. In this pandemic, however, people aren't spreading a deadly virus. They're inexplicably losing their memories. We see this happen in the opening scenes, when an unnamed middle-aged man, played by Aris Servitali, leaves his Athens apartment one day, gets on a bus, and falls asleep. When he wakes up, he can no longer remember his name, where he lives, or where he was going. He isn't carrying any ID, and so he winds up in a hospital where doctors examine him and wait for family members or friends to come and identify him. But no one shows up, and so the man is enrolled in a government program designed to help him and the many others like him cope with their amnesia. He's placed in an apartment and given money for expenses. Each day he plays a cassette tape, the movie seems to be taking place pre-internet, and listens to a voice assigning him a specific task like ride a bicycle or go watch a horror movie, in hopes that these experiences will help jog his memory. He's instructed to take Polaroids of these experiences and keep them in a scrapbook, which comes to resemble an extremely analog Instagram account. It all sounds bizarre on paper, but Apple's the first feature from the director and co-writer Christos Niku unfolds with an understated deadpan wit that makes even its weirder touches seem plausible, even logical. At times it reminded me of some of the brilliant absurdist satires, like Dogtooth and Attenberg, that have put Greek cinema on the map over the past two decades. But Niku has a gentler, more melancholy touch. The script leaves a lot to the imagination— we learn no more about the cause or the outcome of the pandemic than we do about the avian attacks in Hitchcock's The Birds. We also don't learn much about the main character's background. There are no flashbacks to his earlier life, and there's no voiceover narration either. But while the character is quiet and emotionally reserved by nature, Servitali, the actor playing him, is a mesmerizing screen presence. Sometimes Niku shoots him in close-up, and sometimes from a distance, creating a ghostly, disorienting effect. You can't stop watching him, whether he's walking the streets of an eerily underpopulated Athens, or slicing and eating apples, his favorite fruit. At one point he befriends a woman, played by Sofia Giorgo Vasili, who's also trying to recover her memory through the government program. An attraction forms, but then quickly dissipates. Their amnesia is more of a hindrance than a bond. Without their memories and their identities, it's hard for these two lonely, drifting souls to get on the same wavelength. Speaking of memory, watching Apples for the second time in two years, I was startled by how vividly I remembered much of it. In particular, I haven't stopped mentally replaying one extraordinarily moving scene, 
in which our hero goes to a crowded dance club and begins doing the twist, losing himself in the music and the moment. Is he suddenly remembering how he used to dance? Or is he blissfully surrendering himself to his amnesia? It's not immediately clear. And it's also not the only such ambiguous moment. At times, our hero seems to experience flashes of clarity. He remembers his old address. He recognizes a dog from his old neighborhood. Is his memory coming back? But if so, why doesn't he share this good news with anyone? Almost as if he preferred to stay in the dark. Is there some other explanation for what's going on? I won't give anything away, especially since I'm not entirely sure myself. But as it unfolds, Apple seems to become a story about romantic loss as well as memory loss. Sometimes it suggests a lower-key version of Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. And like that tale of lost love, it asks whether some memories are best left forgotten. As strange and singular as Apple's is, its protagonist's condition hits on something universal. It's about how we deal with grief and loneliness, especially when memory becomes more of a curse than a blessing. Justin Chang is film critic for the LA Times. He reviewed the Greek film Apples. Tomorrow on Fresh Air, we'll hear from Kelly Lytle Hernandez, who's been called a rebel historian because she examines important chapters of history from the vantage point of the marginalized. Her new book, Bad Mexicans, Race, Empire, and Revolution in the Borderlands, is about the Mexican Revolution of 1910 and the journalists, migrant workers, and miners who organized thousands of Mexican workers and American dissidents to overthrow the dictator Porfirio Diaz. His rise to power was supported by some of the wealthiest families in the U.S., like the Rockefellers and the Guggenheims. I hope you'll join us. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Salat, Phyllis Myers, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Saman, Teresa Madden, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Thea Chaloner, Seth Kelly, Susan Yakundi, and Joel Wolfram. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. Roberta Shorrock directs the show. I'm Terry Gross. We all hope you've been enjoying the holiday. Mm-hmm.